0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Einstein's Grouch Podcast. Today, my guest is one of my superheroes, one of the greatest minds in the marketing field of all times. It's the greatest and the legendary Rory Sutherland. Rory, hello and thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast.
1: I think that's the most flattering introduction I've ever had. I think too flattering too, but thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Rory. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you find yourself in the marketing and advertising field? I was very lucky. I was
1: thinking of becoming a teacher. Um, I'm not saying I'm lucky because I didn't become a teacher, Um, but I was training to become a teacher. And then I had a kind of panic, which is I realized that if I became a teacher straight after leaving university, my entire life would consist of school, university, school. And I thought that was probably just a bit limited. And so I started applying in 1988, I think, or late 1987, to various advertising agencies. And was very lucky, in fact, to get the only job offer came from, I had a few interviews, but the only actual firm job offer came from Ogilvy & Mather Direct, as it was then called, which was the direct marketing wing of Ogilvy, or Ogilvy & Mather, as it was then called. And funnily enough, David Ogilvie himself always said that anybody who wanted to become a copywriter or a creative um, should always start their career in direct marketing.
0: And it turned out to be incredibly good advice. Oh, that's fantastic. Because I I knew that you studied Latin in university. That's right. How yes, did? Yeah, I was a classicist.
1: Go ahead. Um, What appealed to me, to be honest, okay, if we're being completely selfish, I think the advertising industry, I didn't have a lot of money. In fact, my father had lost quite a lot of money um, (laughs) uh, shortly before I had to go and find a job. And I think what appealed to me bluntly about the advertising industry is it struck me as something which was reasonably lucrative. In other words, it was reasonably well paid, at least potentially. It was very badly paid when you first started, um, while also being fairly interesting. And I was always interested in psychology and I was always interested in human behavior. And um, I also, if you remember, this was the late 80s and British advertising was particularly good then. Uh, You know, you saw the kind of arrival of agencies like Bartle, Bogle, Hagerty on the scene uh, towards the end of the late 80s. And um, the quality of work being produced on television and on the press was, to be blunt, higher than it is now. Um, And so... Uh, Everything about the industry appealed to me. And when I decided I didn't want to go straight into teaching, although ironically, I suppose, uh, 30 years later, I've kind of ended up as a teacher in part, um, the advertising industry particularly appealed. And then I ended up in um, Ogilvy and the Direct, which was then chaired by a brilliant man called Drayton Bird, who's still alive and active and fabulous. And he was kind of the guru of British direct marketing to a great extent. And I was very, very lucky going into direct marketing because it was there that my interest in behavioral science really began for the very simple reason that um, uh, in direct marketing, you obviously get testable results, measurable results. And so direct marketing was performing really very large-scale kind of A-B tests or randomized control trials. We didn't call them randomized control trials. We called it testing. But what you would repeatedly find in direct marketing is you test something which was seemingly fairly irrelevant to whether people would buy the product or not, or logically might seem fairly irrelevant, but it would turn out to be decisive. And so it was the early results that i discovered in direct marketing that really spawned my interest in what
0: i didn't know was called behavioral economics fantastic so right now i'm really curious about how did you find that shift in the mindset from a possible teacher to an advertiser
1: um, you've got to remember it was the 1980s and it was in britain it was quite a materialistic time it was kind of you know, on the tail of the kind of Thatcher-Lawson boom, London was a particularly exciting uh, and uh, rapidly um, uh, sort of thriving place in terms of just wealth and opportunity and optimism. And um, to be honest, um, I've always quite liked a little bit of uh, of bling and, uh, you know, uh, know, I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, and so... Actually, I've probably, for my own temperament, I find te- I found teaching a little bit. Um, I, I actually loved the actual business of teaching in the classroom, but I found the culture um, a, a little bit too austere for my slightly sybaritic tastes. And I'll tell you the story, funnily enough, which is: in the morning, I'd been in a school, I think, and. Uh, that, you know, you'd sit there in the school common room and someone would come in and say, Fothergill Minor has been found smoking behind the bike sheds. And I was expected to get really angry about this and go out and discipline Fothergill, even though it wasn't really in my temperament to do it. And then that same afternoon, I think I was having an interview in uh, Ogilvy for the first job. And a man who I didn't know then, but was almost certainly Drayton Bird came into reception and someone said, how was your trip? And he said, it was actually a bit tiring because I had to change planes in Addis Ababa. And I remember thinking, hmm, I don't really hear things like this in, in, in the school common room. This sounds a bit more exotic and a bit more rock and roll uh, than what you get teaching in a school. And, of course, when you, what you've got to remember is that, you know, when you're – how old was I then? I guess I was about 23, 22, 23. When you're 23, that stuff really, really appeals to you. Um, shallow, I know, it's slightly shallow, but it did seem just a little bit more exotic. And, yeah. Um, it, uh, and, you know, the whole, the whole ad industry culture was generally quite um, shamelessly uh, uh, sybaritic and uh, self-indulgent. And I have to admit, when you're 23, that really appeals to you. I think I think fundamentally, actually, and I often say this to the finance people at work, I think we sometimes get staff remuneration wrong because we've been led to believe it's all about money, you know, that people work, you pay them, okay? Well, first of all, that assumes that people don't enjoy their work. The reason your salary is called compensation is because in labor economics, it's compensating you for your loss of free time. But what I've always said is two things. First of all, if you make the work good enough, it's actually enjoyable. But also, as I always say to our finance people, you don't actually need to make people rich. That's expensive. But you need to make people feel rich. And a little bit of corporate extravagance um, provides you with that little bit of bling and um, sort of indulgent um, uh, sort of sense of reward that actually matters to people, and I know it sounds a strange thing to say no nobody wants to live in a five-star hotel. no one wants to live like a rich person twenty-four hours a day, okay, but it's very very boring in fact, okay, but everybody likes a little bit of self-indulgence and extravagance in their life, and that all I think all the world's religions have spotted that because you have fasting and you have feasting. see no one wants no one wants twenty four hour feasting realistically but people actually enjoy life more if you give them you know a bit of contrast and i think one of the things we've done is we've lost some of that stuff you know we used to i mean the advertising industry i I had a very good friend in advertising who was um the at one time the managing director of ogilvy and he he admitted freely he came from the north of scotland um, and he said, "I'll freely admit it. The reason I went into advertising was that um, uh, I had a job where I had a 16-valve Golf GTI at the age of 25, and those things like company cars, what I call corporate bling, have mostly disappeared. But the, the extraordinary thing was in advertising is that I had I was earning eight and a half thousand pounds a year, and I had university contemporaries who are kind of working for Goldman Sachs or." you know, Bank of America or Solomon Brothers, who are earning 35. But I almost felt richer than they were, because, you know, you go out on Friday evening and uh, someone would order a few bottles of champagne or whatever, Or, or people at the age of 25 will be given quite lavish company car allowances. And I think that stuff's actually rather clever, You know, logically, we'd always say, no, I'd rather have the cash alternative. But the problem is that with your own money, you'd never buy a car that's as exotic as a company car. And so a little bit of what you might call imposed extravagance is actually good for the happiness, I think.
0: I love it because this is really insightful. It shows a lot of wisdom here because people are tempted by the idea that Money is the only thing that matters when you are choosing a job, which is not true, because the trade right. and the fulfillment that you get is way more important than the money itself.
1: And One of the things that interests me following coronavirus is if, as we go forward, um, uh, people typically will travel in. I think will be in the office two days a week. They can be in the office five days a week. People who'd rather would be in the office are free to be in the office as often as they like. But if the obligation is only that you come into the office two days a week. Now, in a city like London, which is monstrously expensive, For a lot of people, not everybody, that's a very, very valuable luxury, because it suddenly means you could live in Brighton, or you could live in, uh, you know, Margate, or you could feasibly live in Canterbury, places where property is much, much cheaper. And then all you have to do is travel in twice a week. So you get five days by the seaside in exchange for two days of commuting. Whereas previously, if you moved out, you had two days by the seaside in exchange for five days of commuting. And one of the things I said to the finance department is, look, the way to look at that freedom is it's actually a way of giving your staff a massive tax-free pay rise, because they can live somewhere which is much, much less expensive. And the great thing is, I said, you you can if you, if you give someone a bigger salary, it's taxed, typically at 40%. But autonomy is just as much valued by staff as money is at some level. And you can't tax autonomy. And so the savings you enjoy by living where you choose to live, maybe in a larger house in a less expensive place, those savings go straight, go straight into discretionary income. And so, you know, we, we must always remember things like that, that the, the value exchange between employer and employee is always looked at as time versus money, because that, those are the things that are easy to measure. They're numerically available. But things like autonomy, which I call free where and free when. I'm a night bird, okay? By temperament, I'm a really, really late night kind of person. I often work between sort of 10 o'clock and 1 in the morning because it's quiet time. And the freedom to do that, and actually, to be absolutely honest, as I did this morning, to wake up at 9.30 or 9.15, okay, that's a really valuable freedom to me. You, you know, one of the reasons I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I never went into finance or investment banking. There are many. One of which is it struck me as a bit boring. But the other thing that put me off is you had to be in the office at eight o'clock. Well, I mean, to me, that's that's like torture. You know, having to actually travel in on a crowded train or tube, uh, and having to get up at seven o'clock or six thirty every morning. To someone like me who stayed up until one thirty last night watching. White Tiger, fantastic Indian film. Um, You know, that's my natural temperament. And so making me get in at seven o'clock in the morning is basically equivalent to torture. And so all those little things, those discretionary elements of employment, I think are really, really important. I noticed that the Goldman Sachs supremo is demanding everybody else gets back into the office. And I think some people will be perfectly happy with this. But I think with other people, he'll have a minor riot on his hands. Um, you know, I, I, I've been a huge advocate of video conferencing technology. It's It's always absolutely baffled me that we didn't make more use of this technology without waiting for a pandemic to force us to experiment.
0: Absolutely. And especially like now with Zoom, a lot of businesses are getting more deals because now instead of traveling to a meeting in other country, you can do it through Zoom and it's it's going to cost you less money, save you a lot of time, and still you can break the ice. What are your thoughts on well, that? Well,
1: well, we can work with you in Morocco, okay? Now, Ogilvy has a particular, I think, comparative advantage here because you know, you know, Ogilvy has strengths and weaknesses, as any agency does, but one of its inarguable strengths is a sort of uniformity of company culture, which was what David Ogilvy always referred to as the great distinguishing feature of, of the brand. And by the way, this is true, that Ogilvy is very much one company. There are other companies which are essentially grown through acquisition rather than organic growth. And it's effectively, you know, a bunch of feuding uh, principalities, you know, that um, uh, every every agency is run as its own particular bit of territory from one country to another. In Ogilvy, it's, it's not just a claim. It's genuinely true that I can wander into, um, uh, you know, Ogilvy in Tunisia or Ogilvy in Japan. And the culture is entirely recognizable. It's uh, very, very collaborative. Um, and it's very, very good on what I call reciprocal altruism. In fairness, actually, someone said the same, a colleague of mine who worked for Goldman Sachs said that was the distinguishing feature of Goldman Sachs. If someone contacted you from Goldman Sachs in Lima, you didn't ask, and they asked for a favor, you didn't ask, what am I getting paid for this? You automatically just started helping them out. And that's very much, so. all credit to Goldman for that, but that's very much the case in Ogilvy. If someone gets in touch with me uh, from you know Ogilvy in Azerbaijan or Ogilvy in Estonia, my first instinct is, right, I'm going to help these people. Now, how do I do it? It's not what's in it for me. And so as a result, I think Og- Ogilvy is particularly well prepared for working across borders and forming kind of borderless teams to work on projects which, through their very diversity, will be better teams, by which I mean there are lots of people who share the same values and can work together more or less uh, hitting the ground running but you've got you've got the common values, but equally you've got the diversity of viewpoint and experience, which makes for a really really good team. That was the great tip I had from a a, um, a a business psychologist. He said, "Businesses profit from diversity in everything except values. You've got to share the same fundamental values. But once you've got those in common, then actually diversity of outlook uh, in every other respect is a benefit." And so, you know, One of the things I, you know, one of the things that's interested me, and I, I you know, uh, I, well, I, and I've noticed this as an extraordinary feature of the last year is. To some extent, I think the world, if I'm being honest about it, I think the world will align on linguistic rather than geographical lines. And so one of the things I've noticed really remarkably is that the number of conversations in the last year I've had with, I suppose, Australia, New Zealand, India, um, South Africa, Canada, and the U.S., um, just to give an example, as English-speaking countries, has gone up by a factor of 10 because suddenly the geography, the cost of the flights, uh, is you know, the, the distance is immaterial. Um, I've often wondered whether New Zealand will have to... I mean, interestingly, I suspect New Zealand, given its time zone, a large number of people in New Zealand in, you know, two or three years' time may actually have a working day where you get up at sort of 6 o'clock in the morning and you work till 10, and then you have the whole day to yourself and then you work again between kind of 8 p.m. and midnight. It would I mean, that would not be a totally insane thing for Kiwis to do because they could then work with the U.S. West and, to some extent, East Coast, and they could work with Europe just by splitting their working day in half. I don't know if anybody's debating this in New Zealand, but if you worked on an international bit of business in New, in New Zealand, that's very much what you might end up doing. Which, by the way, when you think about it, okay... One of the most annoying factors of work is that they make you work during the day when it's sunny and nice. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, when you, when you sign up for a job in the UK, you sign away, certainly in the winter and the autumn, you sign away five-sevenths of your sunshine. And <coughs> the, the guy I've most admired, I always joke about this, which is the person who I've most thought, gosh, you've got work completely sorted was a taxi driver I met in London who'd retired. And he basically retired, gave up taxi driving, spent, you know, week after week at home, where I think he started driving his wife slightly nuts. And then he said, I made a really useful discovery. He said, when it's raining, you make a lot of money driving a cab because demand for taxis goes up about 50%. And he said, when it's raining, you can't play golf. And so His retirement worked like this. He'd get up every morning, he'd look at the sky, and if it was sunny, he went to the golf course, and if it was raining, he drove a cab. (laughs) I always thought, you clever, what what an ingenious way to live. And so he actually had a kind of climate-dependent work pattern, which which, in a country like Britain, where you need all the sunshine you can get uh, for, you know, eight months of the year, Uh, I mean, January, February, and and March, and dismal. I mean, you more or less go to work in the dark and come home in the dark. Imagine what that's like in Sweden, by the way, as well. And um, it always struck me that this man has actually uh, stumbled on something which should be more widespread.
0: Wow, this is really interesting, because this is more of a psychology solution that he did came across. And Yeah, well, interestingly, I think what we've done
1: is in making business decisions psychology free by using disciplines like economics, which are highly reductionist and deterministic, but which don't really take account of psychological factors, is we've limited our solution space. And the argument I always make for psychology is, look, psychology is not an exact science, much as people want to pretend it is, okay? It will always be messy. It will always require experimentation. But it does bring the creative mind one huge advantage, which is it's, it's an other, it's an extra solution space where sometimes problems that can't be solved physically or technologically can be solved psychologically. I mean, a very simple example of that is the loading bar. Okay. now, okay. there's a technological solution to that, which is, you know, make files and apps load faster. The psychological solution is if you show a circle going round and round or a bar moving from left to right, people are completely happy and contented waiting. Whereas if you have a 10 second wait where nothing happens, people basically assume their phone is broken and they go insane. So, you know, the loading bar is possibly, you know, or, or you could say the, the door closed button on an elevator, which doesn't actually do anything. In many, in many cases in lifts, when you press the door closed button, it doesn't actually do anything. It's just there to allow impatient people to feel they're making a difference. Okay. Um, in those cases, um, it's a wonderful example because you've said, okay, we can't yet solve the technological problem. Because of latency or loading time or whatever the hardware constraints may be. But we can, you know, Uber, the Uber map is a wonderful, you've got Uber, haven't you, in Morocco? I seem to remember. But the Uber map is a fantastic case where because you can see the car approaching on a map, you're not particularly anxious or impatient anymore. And so the duration of the wait doesn't really matter that much. The way I phrase it, I'd always rather wait 20 minutes for a train when the sign says, next train, 17 minutes, destination, Hastings, or whatever. I'd rather wait 20 minutes under those situations than wait 10 minutes for a train not knowing when it's going to arrive.
0: Absolutely. And the the Uber example is when you remove that uncertainty, people... Yeah, yeah, it was one of the best things that Uber did, is removing that uncertainty because they didn't solve a transportation problem. It was more of a psychological one.
1: I completely agree. I mean, okay, you can make an economic case around gains to scale and flexibility of employment, and those things aren't irrelevant. But funnily enough, the original idea for Uber came from, I think, a Canadian who was watching the James Bond film, Goldfinger. And um, in Goldfinger, Bond follows Goldfinger's car through the Swiss Alps, and he needs to follow him at a discrete distance because, after all, if you're an Aston Martin DB4, you tend to stand out a bit, right? Um, and yeah. so he attaches this tracker to Goldfinger's Rolls-Royce and follows him at an invisible distance. And there's this scrolling map on the dashboard of Bond's DB4 uh, with a flashing light which shows where Goldfinger's car is going. And uh, I think the guy who saw that effectively had an epiphany and said, that's what should happen when you order a taxi. And I, 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 there are other things, by the way. I mean, the fact that you don't, have to, you don't have to get a physical receipt, the fact that you don't have to pay with fiddly cash. Uh, uh, the fact also, by the way, which people don't notice, that before you book an Uber, before you've even pressed a single button on the app, it gives you an estimate of how long current waiting time is expected to be. Because that always used to be a dilemma. If you were at a party on a Saturday night, you'd go, well, okay, I've got to get a car in the next half hour. Because if I get a car off, you know, in 45 minutes time, I might miss my last train home. But then you'd ring the taxi firm and you'd say, uh, when can you get me a cab? And the blasted thing would turn up in five minutes. And you go, I didn't want to leave the party this early. And the great thing with that Uber thing is you can just have an eye, keep an eye on the map and it says current waiting time about 12 minutes. So you go, OK, well, since I want to leave in half an hour, at current rate, I'll leave it 15 minutes before I order a car. And so all those things, those little bits of information provision, have a huge effect on your experience. And it used to happen all the time. You'd ring you'd ring a, a firm and I mean technically you can ring a minicab firm and say, I'd like a car in half an hour, but then you start getting a bit nervous. Well will they really will they really turn up at eight thirty? So you end up booking one for eight fifteen and then you know and then the whole thing, you know, knocks on. So I I, I think One of the things which I think is a tragedy of economics, I think it's a tragedy of politics, um, is that we don't spend enough time asking the question, what is it that people really care about? We've got proxy measures like aircraft punctuality. But if we ask the deeper questions, which is, what do people really want from a flight? And it isn't so much punctuality as, as a sense of confidence. And often you find it's much, much easier and cheaper to generate a sense of confidence um, uh, than it is to, uh, to to generate actual physical, tangible improvements. Um, and I, I think quite a lot of effort's misdirected. For that. I've had a fantastic conversation uh, with someone at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and they've just started a kind of behavioral economics uh, wing and a behavioral science wing at the airport. And one of the things they're doing is deploying lots of very clever signage and a very clever design of the boarding gate so people don't feel they have to stand in line for 20 minutes before the gate opens uh, in order to get on the plane first. Because if you think about it, we all do that. You know, We're about to board a plane, and as soon as we know where the boarding point is, we feel, well, I've got to go and stand at the beginning of the line now. And so what what could be 30 minutes spent at a coffee shop casually looking up at the departure board is instead 25 minutes standing in a line like cattle okay because we're desperate to be the first first to board the plane now you know there are lots of ways you could solve that problem you could just give people a boarding number and say until your number is called and, and the other thing it does by the way is they're doing this wonderful thing where typically you might have a satellites departure area at an airport and they're actually, there's space all over the place. There are four gates, there's a coffee shop, there's a shop, there's a little cafe, you know, there might be a bar. And everybody who's departing on the flight that's leaving from gate 32 clusters around gate 32, even though gates 30, 31, 33, and 34 are more or less empty. So therefore, people are more crowded than they need to be. Now, if you had different information systems and and the signage was different, people could actually wander around in a non-crowded state or maybe go and sit outside the cafe instead of clustering around in a kind of corral for the 40 minutes before the plane boards. And it's really fascinating because they're looking at what what makes people happy rather than uh, what makes things efficient. And That's you know, tr- it's really important we understand where efficiency deviates from happiness. You know, Adam Smith spotted this because he spotted that the division of labor was in some ways wonderfully efficient. But on the other hand, for the people involved in the labor, it, it cr- produced work which was exceptionally monotonous and
0: boring. Well, one of the things that I hate about delivery services is that, for example, when they are delivering an item, they just give you the, the day and you are stuck at your home waiting for that item instead of giving you a time frame maybe it's going to be delivered between 2 to 3 pm so you are going to wait for it you are you know it's going to happen and for me this is really interesting because it makes all the difference i hate waiting
1: i mean that's an extraordinary thing because a simple promise that will text you an hour before it's due to arrive okay I've got a little apartment down by the seaside, tiny little flat, down by the seaside in Deal in East Kent. And, you know, it's only 100 yards from the sea. Now, if I have an Amazon delivery and they said, OK, we're going to turn up between one thirty and 2.30, it's fantastic. I can spend the morning on the beach. At one o'clock, I wander back, make myself a cup of tea. The goods arrive. I take delivery. I head back to the beach. Without that specific information, I basically have to spend the whole morning indoors on a sunny day. It's crazy, okay? And I mean, there are other interesting things. I think I've, I agree with you about a lot of things. I mean, it, this also applies to things like doctor's appointments or appointments to service your boiler. Um, One interesting thing as well, by the way, uh, which I did tell a client of ours, is generally they promise morning or afternoon. And... On the day itself, they get a bit more specific. But sometimes they're late. And I said, well, why are you mostly late? And they said, because um, we have a policy that if there's somebody whose water, uh, hot water has failed or their heating has failed, elderly people or people with children get priority. So we bump your appointment to later and we go out and we help the pensioner or we go and and we go and repair the boiler for the person who's got a sort of young child at home first. And I said, do you tell the people who you're late for that? They said, no. And I said, you're nuts. I said, because, look, if you ring me up and say, I'm sorry, we're going to be two hours late, I'm angry. Right. If you ring me up and this actually happened to me. They rang me up and said, I'm terribly sorry we're going to be an hour and a half late because we had an elderly lady and we need to repair her boiler first. I wasn't angry. I was actually happy because I felt that by saying, um, oh, no, 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 you must go to the elderly person first. My boiler service is a lot less urgent than that. I actually felt that I was being a good person. Now, I don't think more than three. I think 50% of people would be angry if their boiler service was late. I think if you said, I'm afraid we'll have to be late because we're going to repair a boiler on an urgent call for an elderly lady um, a few miles away, I don't think more than 1% or 2% of people in Britain would be angry about that. They go, no, no, fair enough. That's exactly, this is how the world is supposed to work, right? You give priority to elderly people. And so I always found it really funny that they were doing this entirely sensible thing, but they weren't telling people about it. So people were... Angry when they should have been contented. You know, I mean, you'd have to be, I think you'd have to be a bit of an ass to be absolutely honest to go, why are you going to an old lady's house to repair her hot water when I've got a boiler service? You know, I'm just sitting there, you know, in relative warmth, uh, waiting for the person to turn up. And it is so interesting. I mean, I've talked, funnily enough, we do a bit of work with the police. And there's this huge issue with the police. Um actually, I'll share a really interesting um, question with you. Um, it's, there's quite a lot of emerging evidence that it's bad. It's often very bad to send people to prison, uh, for a first offense. Okay. And the reason is that, as the great anarchist thinker, um, Peter, uh, Kropotkin spotted, prisons, you know, they can reform people. They are a disincentive. They're, a, you know, um, to commit crime, but they're also a kind of university for criminals. And the other problem is if you've got a full criminal record and you've been to jail, your future employment prospects are very badly damaged, so it's difficult to go straight. So the question we've got to ask psychologically is the people who get really angry, obviously the criminals aren't aren't angry that they haven't been sent to jail, okay, for their, you know, I'm not talking about repeat offenders, totally different matter, okay, but for what might be a one-off crime, it's actually a bad idea to send people to prison, it seems to be empirically. Obviously there's the deterrent effect. But the people who are the victims of the crime get really angry if the person isn't jailed, okay? Because they want to see ju- they want to see justice being done. So an interesting psychological problem here is how can you actually avoid unnecessarily jailing uh, first offenders? I think this is a major problem in the United States, where the I mean the prison population of the U.S. Uh, is absolutely monumental. You know, so twice as many people are in prison in the United States as a proportion of the population uh, than, say, somewhere like South Africa, which has, you know, a a demonstrably worse crime problem. And so undoubtedly, the U.S. is sending people to jail uh, in a way that is not conducive to overall law and order. But how, how can you make victims feel happy about a non-custodial sentence? That's a psychological problem. It's, it, it, and, and absolutely that, you know. Um, and so, you know, another, another interesting question with the police was, look, people don't necessarily care if you don't catch the people who broke into your home. But if you say, look, we haven't been able to catch the people who broke into your home, but here are three housebreakers we've just sent to jail, and we think it's highly likely they're the people who burgled your house, then the victim will be almost as happy as if those people were banged up for the specific burglary where they were a victim. But currently the police don't do that. They don't tell you, okay, we couldn't solve your own car crime, but here are five um, criminals matching your description or M.O., who we've just you know we've just sent to jail the person doesn't actually care whether the person was prosecuted for the specific crime they just want to know that someone's getting punished and so understanding those distinctions that what people care about isn't always the same as what you're measuring is really really important and it comes down to the very simple problem, which is that certain numerical things are easy to measure and quantify, and those tend to translate well into kind of public sector targets and metrics. Whereas psychological things, of course, we don't have metrics for, do we? We have an SI unit for wait time, which is the second, I think, or you know, duration. Okay, we don't have an SI unit for uncertainty. You know, we've got kilograms, we've got clock speed, we've got, you know, megahertz, we've got, um, uh, you know, we've got uh, megabits per second for our broadband speed. Okay, but we don't really have a measure for feelings. And ultimately, if you want to make people happier, you make people happier by changing their feelings. And their feelings are not. directly connected to measures of objective reality
0: 100 percent, and it's more of a trade-off scale that we are talking about because it depends on the way you frame it
1: yes absolutely completely it depends on the way you frame it and actually uh, there's some interesting questions about the united states and about the uk here politically now a few people have said this. Stephen Fry has said it. He's a comedian in Britain. So has, so, so do I occasionally. And so also does a man called George Lakoff at Berkeley. And he said that to some extent, he believes, Stephen Fry believes that the, what you might call the far right in some of these countries has, has actually been created by appalling misjudgments of the left which is the left, has become geographically concentrated. So one of the strange things that's happened politically is there's a there's an elite cast of people who all live amongst each other. Okay, now, one of the great things about having a landed aristocracy, there aren't many good things. I'm going to sound like a kind of 18th century Tory. But by definition, a landed aristocracy is geographically dispersed. Because... You know, you have landowners in Scotland, you have landowners in Yorkshire, you have landowners in in Kent, you have landowners in Wales. Now, those people may have more or less land, depending on how valuable it is. But by definition, their wealth lies all over the place. OK, to some extent in manufacturing industry, manufacturing generated wealth in places that happen to have coal or happened to have water or hydroelectric power. And so wealth creation was dispersed. And now you have this incredible concentration of people who all live amongst each other. And their conversation about politics is dominated by signaling their beliefs to each other in a way that often makes those beliefs or opinions deeply repellent to people who aren't within that tribe. And I think, you know, I think a lot of progressive movements, not all of them. I think a lot of progressive political movements have been good ideas or well-intentioned ideas which have been marketed appallingly badly because what a lot of those people were doing was basically almost doing things that they were almost rewarded by the fact. I'll give you a lovely example. We have a conservative newspaper in the UK called The Daily Mail, okay? And if you live in the kind of BBC um political bubble. You really, really hate the, the Daily Mail and everybody who reads it. Okay. But if you want to succeed in a progressive movement, okay, ultimately you've got to persuade people who read the Daily Mail. And therefore and what these people have been doing instead is they've been doing, let me see what we can do that really annoys Daily Mail readers. <laughs> okay. Now, in advertising, one thing you learn, okay, is I've never seen a brief for a Ford advertisement which says what we're going to do with this Ford advertisement is we're going to really insult and denigrate uh, people who drive General Motors vehicles, right? Okay, right. We're going to run a Ford ad that says if you drive a GM vehicle, you're a moron, okay? I don't <laughs> think in the history of advertising anybody's thought that's a good idea. Funny enough, there was one case where they nearly did it, where um, when... Um, let me get this right. It was under Burnback. So it would have been DDB um, was sort of slightly falling apart. They did an ad for a beer which positioned the people drinking competitive beers as chimps. And I think it was Burnback who said, this is a total disaster. What you're doing here is not persuasive. It may feel great to the client. It may feel great to people who are already drinking your beer. The fact that you're just abusing people who aren't drinking your beer. But in Persuasive terms. It's a catastrophe, and this is the point. It's perfectly possible for a well-intentioned campaign to frame itself in such a way that actually activity and support of that campaign is counterproductive, and I think that's happening with a lot of uh, movements. Now, interestingly, you know, I think this is worth looking at. Um, uh, you know, we had a movement for same-sex marriage in the UK, which went from no support. To majority support in a very short period of time. I'm not, by the way, I'm not making a case one way or the other. I'm merely commenting that it went from zero support to majority support in a very short period of years, with a very, very small amount of actual um, uh, significant hostility. And um, you know, something about that campaign, I don't know what it was, but they got something right because it worked. It, it changed people's minds. There are other campaigns which I think are, um, are 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 silly. So, you know, I mean, mandating the language people use, for example, which I think is increasingly starting to happen, um, and, you know, ha- being obsessed about speech codes. Put it this way, okay, let's imagine, okay, you're on the political left. I can tell you now... It's e- it would be easier to instigate a significant wealth tax in the UK than it would be legally to mandate speech codes. And so why focus on things that don't matter very much, that really annoy people, when you could be focusing on things where you can achieve really meaningful voluntary change through persuasion? Um, by, the way, by the way, interestingly, I don't know why it is that people get so annoyed by woke speech codes. I mean, you know, at one level, it shouldn't really bother me. We don't want to, you know, most the majority of the population don't want to uh, offend and upset other people, okay? Um, uh, you know, and and generally want to conduct their lives in a way. We have an obligation, uh, you know, not to upset people. I mean, I, I make this distinction very clearly about things like um, the cartoons shown in France, okay, um, uh, and, and and a British school, okay. Two very simple things. I technically have a right to satirize the prophet okay i have a legal right to do that but i also have a social obligation not to do so and you know you can't make everything legalistic okay you 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 can't impose you know certain things like the language we use has to be done voluntarily through a sense of obligation because i have a sense of obligation not to offend hindus okay that's an obligation of mine people you know I, i i respect other other religious beliefs And I think it's a simple duty to acknowledge that. So I never put Je suis Charlie on my Twitter feed because I don't want to do that. Okay. I appreciate they've got a right to do so, but I don't, I, I, I I, I have an obligation not to at the same time. And that's why I never put Je suis Charlie on my, my, my Twitter feed when, when the, 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 those attacks happen and so i i think what it was interesting is that by seeking to impose things which people feel should arise out of a sense of obligation not a sense of imposition you're doing something which really really annoys people it's not that they don't want to be nice it's that people really really resent being forced to be nice maybe it takes away the pleasure of being nice interestingly you know maybe actually you know that compulsory altruism actually deprives me of the pleasure of actually helping people out. Interesting way of looking at it. I don't know, but there is undoubtedly a really interesting question because government, if you look at it, is dominated by lawyers. And as Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winner, says, uh, Washington D.C. is a place run by lawyers who occasionally take advice from economists. Anybody else interested in helping the lawyers out need not apply. That's a great Thaler quote from. I think an article he wrote in the New York Times. Now, what's interesting to me is that if you want to change society, you don't have to be a massive libertarian just to acknowledge that, look, surely the way to change society is persuasion first, economic incentives second, if persuasion fails, and then compulsion third. But the way government tends to approach problems is compulsion first, economic incentives second, that comes from the economists, and persuasion third. Now... It's, it really fascinates me, this, because, you know, what a lot of people are trying to do, I think, is is to legally enshrine things that should be voluntary. And uh, so, you know, it fascinates me because if you had persuasion first government, one of the things government could do much more of is just asking people nicely. OK, they, the government could set social norms really easily. There's no, if you, if, if, you, if you nudge people towards a certain social norm in terms of behavior, okay, there's no loss of freedom. You're completely freedom free to ignore or dissent. But it, the behavior becomes easier to adopt because it's become normalized. And I think we've seen a great example of normalization with video calling, for example. So the way I phrased it on another podcast earlier this week is I said, going to a client or a colleague and suggesting a video call in 2019 was like asking for Dr. Pepper. And now it's like asking for Coke. Okay. I always say the great magical property of Coke is you can ask for it anywhere. And they basically got an obligation to stock it. You know, there's nothing weird, whether you're at a Michelin starred restaurant in Paris, you can ask for a Coke. If you're in a beach shack in Tanzania, you can ask for a Coke. Okay. There's nothing weird about asking for it. They're expected to provide it. Okay, it's been normalised in a way that no other carbonated drink has been. It, actually, that locally, locally they have been. You know, maybe thumbs up in India. Maybe um, actually, if you go to Texas, Dr Pepper is basically uh, you know normalised in, in Texas and New Mexico. But but in most places globally, Coke has just been normalised. And what we've seen in 2020 was that video conferencing went from being a slightly weird thing to do to being completely standardised. And so now. If previously, think of it like this, right? In 2018, if I'd suggested, let's not go and see this client, let's go and pitch over video conferencing, right? If that went wrong in 2018, people would blame me. They'd say, I told you we should have flown there. If that goes wrong in, in 2022, people will blame Zoom or Microsoft Teams or they'll blame Google Meet Me, but they won't blame me because my suggestion is no longer weird. And so it's much, much safer to propose this behavior when it's seen as normal than it is when it's seen
0: as deviant and strange.
1: And I think understanding the kind of social dynamics of those kind of things, I think, is just really important.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really not curious but it pisses me off is, for example, in Morocco, you are obliged to wear a mask. If you go out, and if you compare that to Texas, w- when you have that freedom, that choice to do it or not, it, it is really fantastic for me. And it's one of the things that really. Looking back, to can I make goodness. a little criticism about this? Which yes. is, I might have
1: done something slightly different. Which is the problem with the masks is they all had little hooks that went over your ears. Okay. So you had to take them off and put them away when you weren't wearing them now um, I bought a mask which was made by a hosiery manufacturer which actually went right round the neck okay so when I was kind of at a distance from people, I wore it round my neck okay I think there's a bit of there's a law in Greece that you're not obliged to wear a motorcycle helmet but you have to carry one on your bike. So if you go around Athens, I don't know if this is still the case, they may have changed it, but some people would ride a bike around Athens with their helmet off but with it slung over the handlebars. Now that's a silly thing to do. Okay, uh, Personally, uh, you know, don't ask me why someone would actually ride a motorcycle without a helmet, but I mean um, you, know, you could argue it lies within the realm of human freedom to do so. Personally I, I certainly wouldn't. Um, uh, but if if we designed masks, you know, for the longer term and said, you've got to wear one around your neck, not much of a burden. And then when you go indoors or when you come close to people, you've got to just put it up over your face. OK, um, it would have been, I think um, it would have achieved much of the same effect with less imposition on freedom. Uh, part of the problem nobody seemed to mention was these masks which go over your ears are, you know, it's not something you can turn off and on very easily. And so you know, it would have been interesting to experiment with it. Had mask design been different, it would have been interesting with the thing, which is you have to ha- you have to be mask ready. In other words, you've got a mask around your neck, uh, and then under these conditions, you have to pop. You know, it's a, it's the work of half a second. I, I don't know about this because it, it, this is where it gets very complicated, by the way. And in sympathy to government, this is where you can't be purely scientific. So, I think that non-dense outdoor social events seem to be a fairly low source of transmission. So you possibly, in theory, if you had a completely obedient populace, okay, and this is where, of course, you know, politics has to differ from places like China, where there's a, you know, very, very high level of conformity, not entirely voluntary, shall we say, but there's a very, very high level of conformity with instructions versus places like Britain and Morocco, where we're a bit more, you know, uh, we're we're generally a bit more, you know, cat-like in our behavior. But in theory, maybe you could have said outdoor socializing is okay, but then you've got knock-on problems, which is that a drinks party in the garden, outdoor socializing, tends to lead to indoor socializing, because what happens is it gets a bit cold at seven o'clock, there are 10 people in the garden, you know, the patio heater runs out of gas, someone suggests moving into the conservatory and leaving the door open, then someone closes the door of the conservatory, then three people go to the toilet, then two people have an argument in the kitchen. And before you know it, you've got an indoor event. So in theory, you could have said, yeah, outdoor socializing is fine. The problem is, is that in practice, outdoor socializing tends to lead to indoor socializing. And so, you know, it's one of those interesting questions where, you know, governing governing a democracy or a place where people tend to be highly perverse is a very different skill to governing an autocracy where you simply tell people what they can do and what they can't. And so, you know, it is a, it is a deeply psychological skill because I think, it, you know, in a way, at a purely logical level, knowing what we know now, we probably could have been less strict with social contact uh, at some points of the um, pandemic. Uh, but equally, being realistic in a lot of cases, you know, the outdoor socializing would have let that that actually happened to the White House. If you remember, they had a party in the Rose Garden and yeah. Trump hosted it and they were all outside in the Rose Garden. And then when it was over, a load of people went into that orangery thing they've got. And that's when there was a kind of super spreading event. I'm fairly yeah. sure the people who didn't go inside didn't get infected, in fact. But by the way, I mean, one thing that makes this difficult is I think there are a load of dimensions about the transmission of the virus that we still don't understand. I mean, we we understand at a very general level what's happening, but what makes the difference between a super spreader and a super spreading event and similar events where nothing happens, where, you know, there are three infected people, but nobody else gets infected. What distinguishes between those two different conditions? ventilation probably makes a difference. And we were slow. I think we were slow to cotton onto that, to be honest. But then again, having said all this confidently, we've seen India where many of those events seem to have been outdoor. I mean, admittedly, they were enormous events. But uh, you've seen a huge and disastrous catastrophe in India just when we thought that the subcontinent had uh, avoided it. Now, you know, there is some sort of climate connection going on here in that places where people can be outdoors or can just leave their windows open, maybe, uh, you know, uh, will fare better uh, than (coughs) countries that can't. But I would argue that we still don't understand the full dimensionality. You know, this is like a five body problem. And we still don't understand all the variables that make a difference. I don't think maybe we never will terrifying thought but you know maybe you know maybe maybe someone with some artificial intelligence model will finally make sense of it but i don't think we've made sense of it yet really we've got generalizable information but really really knowing what's happening no i don't think we
0: have i agree with you and rory i have a question for you if you were searching a business and yeah. you were to to use psychological solutions what is the first thing that you would start with
1: what you've got to do, I think, is you've got to make the objective. If you define the objective in psychological or behavioral terms, by which I mean in human terms, okay, um, you will automatically start to explore a wider range of possible solutions than if you jump to a e- more easily measured but more um, but less well-correlated uh, objective target, Okay. So if Uber had set out to say, we want to reduce people's waiting time. Okay. They would have come up with solutions which involve having loads of cars, predictive modeling, bloody, 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 blah. Okay. And that would have reduced waiting time. But if you say we want to reduce the pain of waiting, which is after all, what really matters. Okay. You will automatically look at different solutions. Now you may end up with solutions which are still objective. You know, you may end up with predictive modeling, you know, where we anticipate where demand for cars is going to be high at 11 o'clock on a Friday evening, and we will send drivers there by default, or we will prioritize journeys which end in this kind of location at that time. And that may be part of the solution. But if you've defined your problem that way, you'll never come up with a map because the map doesn't change objective waiting time at all, okay? But it massively changes the feeling of the weight. And, you know, there are a lot of things in politics like that, which is how the, the question is, how do we redistribute wealth in a way that feels fair? Because how you redistribute wealth? Well, it's very easy to redistribute wealth, okay? And there are loads of ways you can do that. But how do you do it in a way where people go, yeah, that seems basically okay. Now, there's a really interesting idea. This guy called Roger Martin, who's a Canadian academic. He was the dean of Rockland Business School. And he suggested something which I'd always wondered about, which is that taxation levels should be cumulative throughout your life so that when you're young, and after all, you have salary but no capital, You should be taxed at a lower rate. And then when you reach a point where over the course of your life you've earned $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, $400,000, your tax rate should go up. And so rather than taxing people one year at a time, we should acknowledge their past earnings in their future earnings, in how we tax their future earnings. And that's very interesting because if you look at the tax, uh, one of the things that fascinates me is that not many people in Britain earn over £80,000 a year at any one time. Okay, and yet when the Labour Party in the UK suggested a a sort of wealth tax on people who earned. Now, I think it was mistaken anyway, because wealthy people aren't necessarily high earnings, high earners. Wealthy people in Britain are people with a lot of assets. And those people have enjoyed a huge tax free increase in their wealth through asset price inflation, particularly property price inflation over the last 15 years. So if you want to tax wealth, tax wealth, don't tax income. Income is how you get to wealth. It's not actually wealth. So never mind that, but it always fascinated me how angry people got. I mean, I'm kind of right of centre politically in the UK, I'm a conservative voter. Okay, uh, I'm not very right wing conservative, but I'm you know I'm, I'm right of centre. Well, certainly for the ad industry, but I'm not totally averse to ideas like this. And what I'm not, what fascinates me is why are people so angry about taxing people who earn eighty thousand pounds a year, when only about you know four or five percent of the, or three percent of the population does. And then I realized, of course, that 3% of the population at any one time does, but maybe 30% of the population hopes to. And there are a lot of jobs where you you will earn £85,000 a year, but only in the last four years of your working life, right? And what that says is I've worked all my way up the pyramid to become the headmaster of a school. And when I finally start making big money as a reward for all my past efforts, you whack me with a tax bill. Now, by contrast, if you go to people who and you talk about a a universal basic income, now I'm not sure if economically a universal basic income will work, but it's a very, very interesting thought experiment because if you say, okay, everybody gets everybody, the state pays everybody basically a minimum wage, okay, so you know your food and basic accommodation and living conditions are taken care of. Then, if you earn money on top whether it be through capital gains or through um, earnings, above a certain level, you start paying tax at a higher rate. Now, what's slightly weird about that is that the very people who don't like redistribution through the tax code conventionally, i.e. we take your money and we give it to other people, okay, strangely, are perfectly happy Now, Richard Nixon was in favor of a universal basic income, right? Not exactly a left-wing guy. Um, Milton Friedman was in favor of it. My grandfather, who was a pretty right-wing doctor in a Welsh mining town, always thought there should be a universal basic income. You know, you should take care of people's basic needs. After that, it's kind of up to you. And what is quite interesting is the emotional reaction to, to universal basic income, whether it's economically feasible or not, is completely different. I thought this guy, Roger Martin's idea that you should take you should consider people's past income in taxing their present income strikes me as eminently sensible. You know, if you've worked as a teacher for, you know, 25 years, and then for the last five years of your life, you're a headmaster on quite a high salary. Should you be taxed monumentally on that huge salary for the last three years of your life? Probably not. You know, Because, you know, that's effectively, you know, it's payment for past work. And you've only only been a big earner for three years. On the other hand, some guy at a bank who's been earning £200,000 a year for 20 years should be taxed a bit more. Now, what's weird is that everybody's assumed that tax should just look at one year at a time as if every year is an independent event. But that's not how people live their lives. It's not how life is experienced. Now, technologically, it was probably impossible to tax people in that cumulative way thirty years ago or fifty years ago, or certainly two hundred years ago, okay, or it was very difficult to do so. But now, technologically, it's perfectly possible, but we haven't actually considered it because, as I said, we're trapped. This is a great thing, okay, in every case where someone tries to solve a problem. The first way to solve the problem is to make a list of the assumptions. There's a great Silicon Valley bit of advice: make a list of the assumptions in a category. And then ask yourself, which of those assumptions either isn't true or won't be true in two years' time? And generally, I find when you look at problems, particularly if there's a high degree of ideology involved, okay, when you look at problems, you generally discover that people have been making an assumption somewhere which isn't really valid. You know, in order to make taxis better we have to get them to turn up sooner would be an example of that assumption.
0: And you know what strikes me with this is I kinda of just had a breakthrough because <laughs> it seems to me that we 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 yes, we are obsessed with doing things in one way that we forget about other possibilities. And when you were talking about taxation, why not try something different? For example, we can tax people based on wealth, based on activities, based on things that they do. For example, we are not going to tax a doctor the same way we, we are taxing a teacher.
1: Well, that's an interesting question, which is, um, uh, I mean, there are interesting questions about that, about, you know, I, I I don't know if it's feasible to make an accurate judgment on people's social value in taxing them. Because you get into very, very complicated fields there. If I'm working in advertising, but I'm primarily working on climate change messaging, you know, where do I sit on that tax scale? Because advertising person would generally be stereotyped as, you you know, as, you know, as less valuable than doctor. OK, <laughs> but conceivably, someone working in advertising can be hugely socially valued. Um <clears throat> And so it that gets but, – but, I mean, undoubtedly what is true is that the tax system – it's rather like one of the things I've been campaigning for for ages is a flexible season ticket for trains because what happens, you see, is you have a season ticket, okay, which is a five-days-a-week season ticket, which saves you money on your journey. But if you're a part-time worker and you only journey three times a week, the season ticket doesn't pay, so you're left paying for a full, fare commute. Now, that's incredibly unfair to part-time workers. Okay, And you look at it, and you go, well, why is the season ticket just five days or nothing? And you realize it just arises from technolog- what was technologically possible and easy to do in the 19th century. You know, there's no reason now with smart ticketing, you can't, you know, basically say in any given month your second journey costs less than the first and your third journey costs less than the second and so on. You can have a rolling you know, program of discounts or you can say anybody making the journey twice a week gets the same pro rata discount as someone making the journey five times a week. It's technologically possible to do that. The reason nobody's done it is just because it wasn't possible in the, tw- in the 19th century and nobody's noticed the change. And so I think you get a lot of that stuff where we just get trapped by the assumptions of a previous age.
0: 100%. Rory, I kind of have a question related to your book there was something that I was not able to grasp, which is cause, context, meaning, emotion, and effect. What do you mean by this? Well, the link between
1: objective reality, what you're measuring in the real world, and how people behave, passes through a number of prisms or lenses. Okay. And therefore it's not safe to assume that an intervention in the objective space will lead to a change in behaviour in a linear or neat way, or indeed, in any change in behaviour at all, by the way. Okay. And so what I say is there's the objective reality, there's how, then there's the context in which we perceive the reality, the meaning we derive from the mixture of reality and context and perception and, and the story we tell ourselves. Then there's the emotional response, therefore, to that stimulus. And then there's the behavior that results from the emotional response. Okay. And when you're passing through that black box, it's completely unsafe to assume that um, the connection between objective change and behavior is going to be linear, consistent, uniform, or anything else. And so the, between reality and behavior, there is kind of an enigma machine. I don't know if you're familiar with the enigma machine, that German uh, you know, code-breaking thing where you had rotating drums. And by the way,
0: it's an amazing movie. Amazing movie, an
1: absolutely fantastic movie. And uh, and and one of, you know one of humanity's uh, de- cracking that which came from I think started with a bunch of Polish mathematicians and then uh, spread to the UK and then led to the kind of uh, creation of the computer. But what's interesting about that is that uh, cracking that's one of the you know great human towering achievements I think. But that's the kind of thing you're faced with when you say uh, we're going to drop the price by twenty percent, therefore demand will go up. Well, as a generalization in aggregate, that assumption is right more often than it's wrong, okay? But that's the most you can say. There will be some people who are less likely to buy something if you make it cheaper. Sometimes you actually increase demand by putting the price of something up because you change what it means. Uh, Someone was telling me, I don't know, I need to check this for veracity, but someone was telling me that Peloton was considered a slightly gimmicky exercise machine until they put the price up when it suddenly became a status symbol. And so, so you know, um, the idea that economics has, which is that there's a kind of, that humans are like atoms and they all behave in the same way, regardless of context and regardless of past experience. Um, it, the attempt of economics to model human behavior on physics is doomed to fail because we don't even respond In a consistent way, how I react to something will depend on who I am. It'll depend on my genetics to some degree. It will depend on my frame of reference. It will depend on my context. It'll depend on the way you present the information to me. Okay. All those variables will have an effect on behavior and it will depend on what everybody else does because, you know, because, and it'll depend on what I've done in the past. Okay. So human behavior is very, very non ergodic, if you like. And as a result of that, you know, it's an absolutely nonsensical attempt to seek to create a kind of Newtonian world around human behavior because the forces that actually make the difference to the behavior may be surprising, you know, two very big forces, habit and social norms. Okay. They're two kind of like gravitational forces here. Okay. And so. Um, depending on those things, you know, one of the great things that's happened to Zoom is that it's socially normalized. Okay. I no longer, if I said to someone, do you fancy a Zoom call? One, I know they're going to know how to use the technology. Um, you know, they're not going to suddenly spend the first six minutes on mute, fumbling around with their camera settings by now. But I also know that my request is perfectly normal and no one will, you know, if, if the Zoom call goes wrong, no one will blame me for it. Now, that wasn't the case in 2018 context change. Um, And so understanding all these things, this is what I mean is the enigma machine between input and output. In other words, if the output is the behavior and the input is the objective reality, okay, um, uh, then a hell of a lot of dials turn and a hell of a lot of strange lenses get applied in between one and the other. And Therefore, the things you need to experiment with in the real world aren't necessarily the things that make a diff you know, aren't necessarily the things that you naturally tend to measure. Because I've met a load of cab firms, have a load of data on how quickly the cabs turn up, but they never had any data on how anxious the person felt while they were waiting. And the second one is the, the one that matters if you're a business, not the first. Whether something's cheap or expensive is surprisingly irrelevant to whether it feels cheap or feels expensive. Whether something's expensive or cheap depends on what you compare it to,
0: right, yeah, and you know this is really interesting because here's the thing, like when I went to to live in France, what I noticed is that, for example, you are buying something in Morocco that costs ten dirhams each, mm. it's approximately one euro, and when I was buy like when I was living in France, the thing that strikes me is when I saw something that costs ten euros. For me, it feels cheaper because I was comparing it, the ten, yeah, to, the, to to the Moroccan currency, and like it, it was really interesting because my my reference point there was the the number itself rather the currency. Fun enough,
1: someone said that Germans got very angry when the euro was introduced because. Um, they went down to Italy, you see, and they bought a pizza. Now, lira was the opposite. It was like thousands of the things, right? So, to be honest, you didn't really do the maths. You didn't, when I looked at a pizza that cost, you know, a few thousand lira, I, I didn't, you know, I just went, yeah, whatever. Okay. And Germans always just assumed that things in Italy were cheaper than they were in Germany. And when the euro was introduced, maybe the Italians put their prices up a bit. I'm not quite sure. But, maybe, but Germans got very annoyed when they discovered they were paying the same price for a pizza in you know, in Italy than they would in Stuttgart because they'd always had it mentally in their mind that because I'm in southern Europe, I'm saving money. And um, uh, no, absolutely true. I mean, I, I persuaded my – I've told this story so many times. I persuaded my dad to get satellite television – by saying it's not 17. He wouldn't. I, I even offered to buy it for him. He wouldn't. He said it's too expensive. And I said, it's not 17 pounds a month. It's 60 pence a day. Um, and um, I said, he said, well, why does that make any difference? I said, you spend two pounds down on newspapers. So I said, if you spend two pounds down on newspapers, spending an extra 30% to get 200 channels of television actually is pretty good value for money compared to a newspaper. I'm like, oh, I see what you mean. He said, and he went and got satellite. Television. He loves it. Okay. But he wasn't prepared to get satellite television when it was £17 a month. But when I reframed it, recontextualized it. And so many problems are solved by recontextualizing something. It's not that you actually have to solve the problem in and of itself. You have to recontext, you know, as the reason you're stuck with the problem is probably because your context is trapping you in a particular mindset. And if you can reconceptualize it or recontextualize it, half the time you've solved the problem. And yet, When we only look at objective measures, our need to look scientific and to look objective destroys the creative potential for oblique solutions to a problem through reconceptualization or integrative thinking or um, or even, I mean, one of the things we tend to do, by the way, when we have metrics is we tend to go, okay, we need to reach an optimum. And the optimum is usually something which actually is an attempt to resolve two contradictory th- forces. Okay. Now, the way to solve that problem creatively is to come up with something completely different, which stops the contradiction being a contradiction in the first place. So I'll give you an example of this from TRIZ, which is a Soviet-era innovation approach. And what I think we do as a team, I think what we do is psychological TRIZ. Okay. Now Triz was developed by an engineer, an Azerbaijani engineer called Gerald Altsuller, and it seemed to me I, I always slightly discounted it on on pure prejudice grounds. Going, what the hell would the Soviets have to teach us about innovation? But then it occurs to me that if you're in a kind of very, very metrics obsessed, extremely centralised uh, society, you're going to be have far greater. Um, levels of attunement to the problem than you would be if you lived in silicon valley because when everything is trying to stop you innovate you you become very very highly attuned to what the obstacles are to innovation okay it's a bit like you know a fish doesn't really know what much about water okay um and so it suddenly occurred to me that the soviet union is actually the perfect place to spawn really interesting thinking on innovation because it's It's coming at the problem from a completely different and extreme situation. And the example, I'll give an example of Triz, okay? You want an umbrella to be big because if it's too small, it doesn't protect you from the rain. A three inch umbrella, you know, nobody walks around with a cocktail umbrella held above their head. That's useless. But on the other hand, if you make an umbrella too big, like a golf umbrella or a fishing umbrella, if it gets caught in the wind, it gets destroyed or it gets blown away or it basically pulls you off your feet. Now, the standard approach with metrics is what's the perfect size umbrella in between those two extremes, okay? And you come up with a middle-sized umbrella. The true solution is, hold on a second, we've got a, a, a contradiction here between small umbrella too small to protect rain, big umbrella vulnerable to wind. What if we create the gust-proof umbrella, which is two overlapping canopies, which allow the air to escape between the gap where the canopies overlap, it makes a loud farting noise, but you can produce an enormous golfing umbrella, which won't get pulled inside out in strong winds. Now, what's so interesting is the very modality of optimization causes you to almost work with the contradiction, rather than seeking to bypass it and the creative solution goes let's tackle the contradiction head on and let's see if there's a creative way to resolve it so transport policy is what's the right mixture of investment in rail and road versus heavy use of transport a triz solution would be let's get people to move around less which would be actually let's spend less money on roads but give people free video conferencing equipment Okay, but the The metrics that the Ministry of Transport would have don't allow you to consider that because their metrics assume that people are going to be moving about. And so this is the whole thing. It's all about how do we create a greater space for creativity, whether it's engineering creativity in the case of TRIZ or it's psychological creativity, which is what marketing is partly about. Okay. Um, How do we create a greater space for those things to exert their powers?
0: 100%. And... This is really fascinating because I, I, I'm not sure, but I believe David Ogivley said something. Don't trust a marketer who doesn't understand the basics of human behavior.
1: No, Burnback said something very similar as well. Um, and uh, one of the things I've never understood is that, uh, you know, marketers should have caught on to behavioral science five or ten years earlier, but earlier than they did. You know, there were people already there like Bob Cialdini, for example, there was um, uh, Kahneman himself, Tversky was alive at the time. I I I feel a slight sense of shame that we didn't actually cotton on to this, because Amos Tversky rather beautifully said, he said, what we, what Daniel and I do is we take the things that are already instinctively known by advertising executives and car salesmen, and we translate them into recognizable scientific classifications and language, and We'd been very, very clever instinctively, I think. Marketers have stumbled on things that work through both instinct and an evolutionary process. But we didn't do a great job of the classification. Direct marketers did a bit, but advertising people didn't at all.
0: My last question is, what does growth mean to you?
1: Well, okay, uh, if we fixate on efficiency, we'll get more and more efficient at optimizing on the past and optimizing on the past is a way to look good without necessarily discovering new opportunities for growth, because growth is essentially an opportunistic activity, not an optimizable activity. And therefore, one of the things we'll need to do after COVID is experiment more because the past is a less reliable guide to the future. When you have a major upheaval like this, whether it's World War Two or, um, you know, Uh, the arrival of the internet or anything like this, the past becomes a less safe guide to predicting the future.